Good morning. As a child, I was in the Boy Scouts. And the Boy Scout motto is, be prepared, which is always good advice. Try to plan ahead for every eventuality as much as possible. But there's just some experiences in life you can't be prepared for. Try as you might. Some things happen which we just have a hard time imagining. Now, in the Boy Scouts, kind of one of the ultimate in scouting experiences is, um, is uh, it takes place in uh, a, uh, sorry, uh, a ranch in New Mexico called Philmont. And you spend 11 days in the backcountry just hiking, surviving, and it's, it's a great time. So every year, our, our troop would collect some of the oldest scouts and, and go down to New Mexico for Philmont. But the year that I went, um, there was one boy, Jake, who was, who was old enough to go, but he, um, he, he didn't seem to want to. We thought maybe he thought he was too young or too inexperienced. And so we encouraged him, no, no, you should come. But uh, he said, oh, I've got other things to do this summer. And so we went and he stayed. Well, when we came back and shared photos and, and, uh, and shared our experiences, he was saying like, wow, that looked really cool. That looks like a lot of fun. And we said, well, why didn't you come? He said, well, I didn't think it was going to be that cool. I felt kind of bad. My brothers had gone, so I kind of knew what I was getting into, but maybe we didn't paint a very good picture for him. He was unfortunately limited by his imagination, and so he, he missed out. Well, today we're going to be discussing something which the Corinthian church had a hard time imagining, and that's the Christian doctrine of the resurrection. We're going to be in the, the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, today's passage picks up right on the heels of last week's passage. The entire chapter, Paul spends defending the Christian teaching about resurrection, the rising again of our bodies the day he comes back. Resurrection was something Jesus himself taught, and it was something Paul taught the church while he was with them. The word resurrection literally means to stand again or to rise again. And the teaching is all over the place in the Gospels, but here's one of them in John 5.29. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So if you were here last week, you might remember that even though Paul had taught resurrection to the Corinthian church while he was with them, some had begun to doubt this doctrine and instead had been preaching a different sort of resurrection. As Aaron mentioned last week, the Corinthians had been influenced by a heresy called Gnosticism. And one of the things the Gnostics taught was that matter is inherently evil and spirit is inherently good. And so they were certain that the afterlife must be populated only by spirit beings. So many in the Corinthian church began to suppose that what Paul must have meant by resurrection is simply our spirits rising and leaving our bodies behind in the grave. Maybe Paul was just being metaphorical. But the problem is that that kind of thinking is entirely foreign to the scriptures and to Christian thought. Nowhere does the Bible teach that there's anything inherently evil or bad about matter, nor that spirit is always good or pure. The Bible always teaches that that everything God created was originally good, matter and spirit. The Bible considers us to be whole beings, matter and soul, both now and in eternity. We're not angels, nor are we animals. So in the first half of the chapter, Paul's argument was, 
You say you believe that Christ was raised, but now you deny that we're going to be raised. But if Christ was raised, then resurrection is possible for us as well. What you say you believe and what you're preaching are not in line. So now, in the second half of the chapter, Paul continues his case with a very thorough discussion of just how bodily resurrection can work, how we can think about it so we're not limited by our lack of imagination. Now, even outside of Gnostic influence, Greek thought was that bodily resurrection was impossible, even nonsensical. So they had no real category to place this teaching, and so it began to get ignored and denied. So Paul uses a number of different avenues, a number of different angles to show that the problem isn't with our physical bodies. The problem is, ironically, with our minds. The problem is how the Corinthians were thinking about eternity and about God. In fact, they were limited by what they could imagine. So let's begin. Verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You can read this with a bit of sarcasm. How can the dead possibly be raised? You foolish person. Strong words. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Paul's analogy here is of seeds versus the kinds of plants that they produce. So, we're going to have some, pun, some fun. We're going to stop and uh, pause for a little quiz for the gardeners here today. Pictured here are four different kinds of seeds. Now, raise your hand. I know they're kind of small if you're in the back. Raise your hands if you think you know what kind of vegetables come from each seed. Anyone? Any ideas? I thought Jody might have a guess. What do you think, Jody? Keep, 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 keep going for the others. Any other questions? Any other thoughts? Well, here are the answers. Whoops, too far. Beets, carrots, tomatoes, and zucchini. So that might have been a little bit challenging. Um, But now let's pretend you've never seen any of those plants before. Could you possibly guess what the final plant would look like just from looking at the seed? No. And this is Paul's point here. When you plant a seed, it comes up in a very different form than when it went down. The truth is we don't know exactly how our bodies will look or what they will be like in eternity. But just because we don't know doesn't mean it isn't true. In verse 36, Paul calls the Colossians fools. Now, scripturally, what defines a fool is the failure to take God into account. The fool assumes the world is only as it appears, Their philosophies hadn't taken God's creative power into account. But let's face up, it's not just them, is it? Where do we fail to take God's creative power into account? God's creative power can transform the broken human heart. God's creative power can transform 
relationships and families. God's creative power can transform a church. God's creative power will transform our bodies. So our first lesson here is don't underestimate God. Now Paul continues the discussion of God's creativity from another angle. He says, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. So the point here is that God knows very well how to give different bodies to different organisms based upon their purpose and their environment. Paul goes on to say that it's the same with the heavenly bodies. God knew how to give the sun a different radiance than the moon based upon his design for the cosmos. In the same way, God knows how to give us the right kind of body for earthly life and how to give us the right kind of body for eternal life. So to deny the resurrection based simply on the idea that these limited bodies don't seem suitable for eternity is to be completely blind to God's competence and creativity in knowing how to make things just as they should be. These foolish Corinthians had by default just bought in to the prevailing philosophy of the secular world around them. But that philosophy had a flaw. The flaw in Greek thinking was supposing that the resurrection was essentially the reanimation of a dead body, the resuscitation of a corpse. This is what they found so absurd about the notion of a bodily resurrection, but this is not the correct picture. Yes, our bodies are raised from the dead, but there is a creative act of God going on, giving us a new proper body for the more spiritualized existence in new life. This is a picture of um, some subterranean catacombs which I visited when I was in Rome a few years back. European cities are littered with catacombs like these, which were popularized by early Christians who preferred not to be buried or cremated. They, they wanted to leave their bodies as intact as possible, perhaps because they also assumed the resurrection was maybe kind of like resuscitation of a corpse. I guess it makes God's job easier, I suppose. Because the Corinthian church had just assumed what the Greek philosophers were telling them, they had begun to doubt Paul, to doubt scriptures, to doubt Jesus. But we are the fools if we, too, blindly accept what the secular world is telling us about the world and creation and our purpose here, if it is based on denying God's creative possibilities. But Paul is careful to show that the Corinthians are not completely off base. They just need to consider things with God in mind. In verse 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Paul is essentially conceding the Corinthians' argument in the sense that, yes, this human body is not fit for eternal existence. You're right. It's perishable. It's dishonorable. It's weak. It's natural. We're just a mess. These bodies don't work in a way that will last forever, as some of us are keenly aware. So you're right to see that these bodies are not fit for eternity, but the answer is not to deny the resurrection, but to expand your imagination, to see that God is part of the equation. Well, speaking of equations, 
Sorry, I don't mean to give painful memories to any of you that you might have had in high school algebra. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you solve any algebra problems today. But most of you know that this is called an equation. The letter X here is called a, a variable, and it stands in for a quantity that changes. You plug in a value for X, and then you can calculate a value for Y. But too often, we treat life like an equation. If we plug in these quantities, we can be certain of what we're going to get out. And the truth is, in life, we do everything we can to calculate every number and statistic and probability we, in life that we possibly can, hoping that we can have certainty about what we're going to get out. And the problem is that the Corinthians didn't have a place for God in the equation. God is an unknown quantity in the sense that his mind is higher than ours. We don't always know what he's going to do. But we really don't like unknowns, do we? Real life doesn't work out like an equation, especially in God's kingdom. Scripture doesn't satisfy our curiosity about a lot of things. There's an awful lot that's left up to mystery. But our ability to imagine something shouldn't be the reason why we believe or don't believe that the scriptures teach. I think it's very common for us today to fall into the same mindset, the same trap as the Corinthians. At least speaking for myself, I think it's re really easy to look at the world around us, which looks so natural, so normal, just as it is, and start to assume that this world is all there is. If we don't have eyes that are trained to see the divine in the ordinary, then all we'll ever see is the ordinary. And it makes it very hard for us to imagine that God is going to do something very different with the world someday. Even if we say we believe in God and heaven and eternity, we kind of just start to live like the world is ordinary. The world is not ordinary. The idea of resurrection and eternal life can seem pretty incredible. It is incredible. Sometimes it seems impossible to our small human imaginations. But the idea of resurrection is part of a bigger belief that we were meant for something bigger than this. The world was meant for something more. Things are broken in the world that need to be fixed. God is going to set things right. And we are going to live like we were meant to. Our ability to comprehend something really has no correlation to how possible it actually is. Paul specifically says in Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. We don't believe in God because he's easy to imagine. There's a quotation by C.S. Lewis that many of you might be familiar with. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We fool around with trinkets because we can't imagine 
what God has for us. Where, does, where do our imaginations limit us? Are your expectations for God acting in your life limited by what you can't imagine? Is your belief in God's amazing love for you or his forgiveness of your sins limited by what you can't imagine? Are your assumptions about how God created or governs the world limited by what you can't imagine? Are your prayers limited by what you can't imagine? Is North Park's vision for how we can can impact the community and the world limited to what we can imagine? Don't be limited by what you can imagine because God can do far more than we could ever imagine. Believe that God can do what he says he can do, not just what we can imagine him doing. Now, Paul is on the same soapbox for the whole rest of the chapter. He says, let's get this right. He's approaching this from every angle he can think of because the doctrine of resurrection is that important. So next he emphasizes that not only is God creative, he is re-creative. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving or it became a living being. The last man, Adam, that is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. We'll jump to 48. As was the man of dust, Adam, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. For Paul, and even Jewish thought in general, Adam was a paradigm, a symbol for this worldly, mortal life. And as descendants of Adam and Eve, we share their flaws, their weaknesses, their mortality. But now, as Paul often says elsewhere in his letters, we are adopted as sons and daughters into Jesus' family. We no longer share Adam's lot, but Jesus's. His future will be ours, and our new bodies will be like his. But we can't do it ourselves. A baby can't adopt itself into someone's family. Parents have to do it. The initiative comes from outside of us. We can't do it ourselves. And that's the point Paul is going to emphasize next. Verse 50. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Flesh and blood is a Jewish way of saying this flawed body, this current reality. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Meaning Jesus will come back while some are alive and others are dead, but the dead and the living both will need a new resurrection body. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body put on immortality. This idea of putting on immortality is Paul's way of emphasizing the idea of continuity between this body and the next, this life and the next. This was likely another part of the Corinthian objection. If these bodies die and God makes new bodies come to life, they may as well be different people. 
well, yes, we'll have new bodies, but we won't be different people. There's continuity between here and there. It's like we put on immortality. Now, the idea of, of continuity, I think, can also be communicated with this graph. But don't worry, this graph isn't from your algebra class. It's from your literature class. Um, who remembers learning this in school? The elements of story. Almost every story you have ever read, almost every play or movie you have ever seen, probably follows something like this structure. It's the classic formula that makes story interesting and compelling and relatable. Here in the introduction is where the setting is established and the characters are introduced. Next, some kind of conflict or problem is introduced. The rising action is when the characters grapple with the conflict and grow as individuals or grow together as a group. At the peak is the climax, which is where the characters, using how they've grown over the rising action, persevere over the conflict and they're able to overcome. And then after that, you almost always have some falling action and then resolution, which ties up loose ends and then maybe shows what the future holds for the characters. Now, if you let me be a little simplistic, I think it's easy to see the biblical narrative in this graph. The introduction gives the setting and characters Genesis 1 and 2, a God-created earth populated by God-created people. Then the conflict comes, sometimes called the fall, which is when human pride and greed enter into the picture. As the rising action progresses is when God continually intervenes in human history to battle human and spiritual evil throughout human history. And then we get to the climax of the biblical story, which is when Jesus triumphs over death and over sin on the cross. So right now, we're living here. We're in the falling action. The, we're past the climax, but there's still a lot that has to be wrapped up before the end can come. What this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is dealing with is here, in the resolution. What the future holds, what is to come. But now, at this point in the chapter, Paul pops back in time for a moment to consider the climax. Let's look at the next verse, 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Here Paul is paraphrasing the prophet Hosea in this taunt directed at death incarnate. These are rhetorical questions. Where is your victory, death? Where is your sting? Ha ha. The resurrection will kind of be the last nail in death's coffin. And the cross was the first nail in death's coffin. But then Paul does a very funny thing. It's funny to me, anyway. He answers his own rhetorical questions. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Well, what do we do with that? Paul has just inflated this balloon with this taunt against death. Ha, where is your sting, death? And then he pops it with this theological reality. Death does have power, and death does have sting. And that's because of sin. 
we are sinners and the law proves us to be sinners. We miss the mark. We don't live up to God's standards. Nobody does. The law gives power to sin because it reveals how we fall short of God's standards. And sin gives sting to death because broken people don't belong in God's perfect paradise. We deserve to die. That Paul does this here would be funny if it weren't so tragic. But if this is true, what do we do with this? Why does Paul even say this here? What does this have to do with resurrection? Well, in the discussion of the resolution, Paul wants wants to remind us how the climax took place. It wasn't through our own power. It was God in the equation. And the same is true for the resolution. It won't happen through human effort. We can't get us there. Humanity can't deal with our sin problem on our own, and we can't perfect our bodies and our world on our own. In the next verse, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory. We were sunk. We had no way out. But God gave us the victory through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Now, in literature jargon, this is the classic deus ex machina. Who's heard of this phrase, deus ex machina? A couple of us. It's a, it's a phrase that means God from a machine. And the phrase comes from ancient Greek plays where sometimes the characters would get to the climax of the story but would be unable to persevere over the conflict, over their enemies. And so sometimes you would have a literal crane of the machina, the machine, lower an actor onto the stage who's playing the part of one of the Greek gods. And that Greek god would then intervene and deliver the heroes from their plight, which they were unable to do on their own. Now, in literature and film, this is often perceived as kind of a cop-out. Deus Ex Machina is used to refer to any kind of plot development that has nothing to do with the characters and their growth over the story. It's a little unsatisfying because it's much more compelling to have the experiences and the growth of the characters through the rising action be why they're able to persevere in the end. Not just this God who comes from outside the story to save the day at the last moment. So you might be wondering, if deus ex machina is what's happening in the biblical story, if God just gives us the victory, as verse 57 says, rather than us having to earn it through our own personal growth, am I saying that the biblical story is kind of unsatisfying? Is it a poor story? It would be if this were our story. This is not our story. This is Jesus's story. Jesus is the hero of this story. He is the one who overcomes. He is the one who perseveres. He is the one who earns the victory. Jesus is the one whose hard work pays off in the end, and he gets everyone through the conflict, through the climax. We are just the audience of the story. But we also get to be characters in the story if we are willing to make our story part of his story.
This is faith. We don't understand everything the hero is doing or everything the author is doing. But we can see enough to make us want to make our story part of his story in order to get us to where we need to be. We can't get there on our own. We need the hero, Jesus, to get us through the climax, and we need the creator, God, to get us through the resolution, the resurrection. This is why Paul brings up death and sin here. We can't do it on our own. We can't absolve our sins on our own. We need Jesus the Savior for that. And we can't get these frail bodies to live forever on our own. We need the creator God for that. We need God to be in the equation at every stage. You needed God when you first accepted him in faith, and you'll need God when you go to meet him. And we need him everywhere in between. Where do we omit God from the equation in our lives? Where do we limit the possibilities of the universe by what is easy for us to imagine? And are we the hero in our own story? Or do we still need to let Jesus take those reins? It's interesting how Paul concludes this discussion. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, therefore means that this application is based upon everything that came before. Because of that, because of the resurrection, we can be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, brothers and sisters, all this resurrection talk has application for today. Because the resurrection is possible, because the resurrection is fueled by a power far stronger than we are, because the resurrection is true, we can be steadfast, immovable. Doesn't that sound refreshing? in today's day and age and climate, to be rock solid. Don't let anything shake you. God has a new creative work up his sleeve. His new album is about to drop. (laughs) Abound in the work of the Lord. Be a source of joy and generosity and grace and forgiveness in your schools and workplaces and communities. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not empty if we stay on course of the things we were taught. So be careful of who you listen to. Be mindful about how your presuppositions and assumptions limit what God says he can do. And let's train our eyes to see the extraordinary in the ordinary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you've given us to gather, reflect on you and your promises and your power. I pray for our imaginations, our mindsets. Please reveal to us where we limit you, where we limit ourselves, where we limit the possibilities for life by our assumptions, by our lack of imagination. Please inspire us, lead us, Help us to see that you can do far more than we can imagine. Lead us to ask things of you that only you can imagine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.